Hey guys, welcome to Picker, CJR's weekly podcast about all things media. I'm your host, Pete Vernon, and we'll soon be diving into the news of the week. But first, subreddits, upvotes, memes. These are the things that make Reddit, well, Reddit. For years, it's been a place for people to connect with others on the internet across a wide variety of niche interests. And it's also been a forum used by journalists to find story ideas and connect with potential sources. Now, Reddit has partnered with Boston Public Radio Station WBUR on a new podcast called Endless Thread that's the most formal collaboration between the internet platform and a journalistic outlet. My colleague Meg Dalton spoke with Ben Brock Johnson, host of Endless Thread, about sourcing stories from Reddit, parachute reporting online, and more. What is your Reddit username, actually? Oh, man. Mine's Broccolish. Is that B-R-O-C-C-O-L-I-S-H? B-R-O-C-C-O-L-I-S-H. Oh, say it one more time. B-R-O-C-C-O-L-I-S-H. I think mine is like, I think mine's Space Rock 89. Ooh, I like that. I can't remember, though. It's either that or it's like Megatronic Adventure. Just tell us a little bit about how like the idea for those Endless Thread came to be and when. Yeah, so I, you know, this actually came, uh, this came out of a story that happened uh, a while before I actually even arrived at WBUR. Um, it was a story produced by uh, Erica Lance, who makes a podcast called Kind World, uh, also for WBUR, and uh, it was a story that surfaced on Reddit. Uh, and I believe, I, hopefully I won't get this wrong, but I believe um, it was a story about people uh, writing letters to someone's grandfather uh, who really enjoyed getting letters and didn't get enough of them. And somehow that information got out on Reddit and uh, this grandfather got a flood of letters from people. Um, and it was just uh, kind of a wonderful story about, um, about people on the Internet being nice to someone, which sometimes feels like a rarity. Um, and that story got produced, and it, I think, planted a seed in the mind of our managing producer of podcasts, uh, Jessica Alpert. And she uh, tweeted uh, sometime after that at Alexis Ohanian, co-founder of Reddit, um, and said, hey, we should make a podcast together. And he responded positively. And then Jess and I ran into each other at a podcast conference, as you do. Um, and just started talking about things we were working on. And she uh, mentioned that she might be working on this podcast about Reddit. And I got super excited because I love Reddit. And, um, and that excitement was, I think, infectious, hopefully. And, uh, and that was probably a year and a half ago. And we talked for a long time about um, what the show might be and how to make it. And, uh, and, you know, fast forward to now, now we're making it. And so you were formerly with uh, Marketplace Tech and Codebreaker, another awesome tech podcast. So when did you join WBUR and kind of get the wheels turning for Endless Thread? It feels like forever ago, but it was, <laughs> uh, but it was uh, actually August um, that, I, that I started working. Uh, I, I think it might have been the last day in August that I started working at WBUR. Um, and yeah, I, I sort of, we've been working on this project for the last whatever it is now, six months or so. Um, and it's been really interesting because, you know, Reddit is this huge and I think to some people scary place, right? Um, 
And we wanted to take some time to try to really understand the platform better as as producers before we actually put content out there into the world. And that's kind of what we've been doing. We've been, you know, trying to understand the platform, uh, working with, uh, you know, our cohorts at Reddit, uh, like Michael Pope, and and just learning more and and also reaching out to redditors and and trying to get their uh, kind of real life stories. And I guess so far, what was the most surprising thing you've learned about the platform that you may not have known, you know, prior to six months ago? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, okay, so the, here's my easy, my, my sort of maybe expected answer, which is it's it's way more broad and there are far more communities, really active communities on Reddit than I first realized. Um you know, I think a lot of the way that people interact with the platform is they go to r slash all. If they're lurkers like I was for many years, they go to r slash all and they kind of look at the the quote unquote front page of the Internet, at, as Reddit likes to call itself, um, and kind of see what are the most popular stories. That's one of the most, I think, powerful things that the, the, the site does is aggregate sort of what is rising to the top among all of these different communities and and create kind of a crowdsourced um, feed of things that are interesting. And they're really, they're interesting in all sorts of different ways. You get all sorts of things popping up on that page. But, you know, what I've learned over the last uh, six months is that it's just more about where all of that content comes from. I mean, you know, I have found the blacksmithing Reddit where a lot of people who are trying to learn blacksmithing are making things and showing things to each other and giving each other tips on how to blacksmith things. Um, I uh, actually posted a question about um, whether or not the food was still good in my parents' freezer after I left it off for four days in the refrigeration Reddit and got a lot of answers. And one of the things that has surprised me really is is the level of expertise in some of these communities, um, just how many different people are on Reddit, uh, you know, either people working in uh, academia, people who are working in, in very specific uh, industries and fields who come to certain communities and subreddits to to really talk to each other and share knowledge. Um, and I think a lot of people who think about Reddit make assumptions that it's it's kind of a, I don't know, a, a, a place for trolls. Um, and and it's actually it's so much bigger than that. Um, and I, I don't mean that just to be like, yay, Reddit. But it, it really is um, this massive, massive ecosystem of communities. And a lot of those communities are full of people with, with really specific uh, levels of expertise who are helping each other either do work or uh, get through a really difficult personal problem or get legal advice or... Um, get advice on on family. It really runs the gamut. And I think I've just been kind of surprised and amazed how deep you can go. I'm pretty curious about how much time you spend on Reddit now. Oh, no. So, yeah, I used to spend probably like maybe an hour and a half a day on Reddit. Um, so more than the you know average person probably. Yeah, and through my work, uh, you know, making you know, making, I guess, a, a tech show. I just, it, 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 I don't know, it seemed like a natural fit for me as a place that I would go to find news. And, and I don't know, it just, 
it felt like actually a really welcoming place for me as a tech journalist, uh, for whatever reasons. Um, yeah. And I, I, I don't know. It just, it just fascinated me from the very beginning. Um, uh, you know, just how much stuff you could find there and how much different kinds of stuff. Um, and so, and I don't watch TV. So in some ways Reddit for a long time was taking up the time that I would normally spend watching Netflix shows at night or something like that. Um, but now like I have my dream job, I spend, you know, hours a day on Reddit, several hours a day on Reddit. Um, it is for work. I'm, I'm, I'm really combing through stuff and trying to interact with users and, and trying to sometimes just even understand what people are talking about. Cause there are also a lot of inside jokes on Reddit. Right. And, and, um, and learning about how people interact and, and, and just reading their stories. So I don't know now I might say like actually looking at Reddit content, maybe like four hours a day maybe and a lot of and a lot of that is like not actually on the clock like I'll spend maybe two hours a day on the clock um but I'm also you know making content and doing other things so two hours a day on the clock and two hours a day off the clock you know informally I use reddit as a journalist and you mentioned you know you used to use it um, you know, pre-Endless Thread. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering why it was important to kind of have a more formal partnership with Reddit as opposed to continuing kind of the informal usage of the platform. Mm. So one thing that I will say that I hope to do um, a little bit differently than I may have done in the past in terms of connecting the journalism that I do to Reddit itself, uh, to Reddit itself um, you know, I think Redditors have this feeling that the platform gets mined for content a lot. Um, and it does. Um, you know, if you look on, um, you know, Vice's motherboard or Time, uh, you know, Time.com or uh, any number of places, I mean, even the New York Times um, will find things on Reddit, uh, and, and essentially, you know, in, in not in any necessarily in any bad way, will kind of mine the platform for a story. Um, I think that, uh, one of the things that we benefit from, um, as, you know, having this more official relationship with Reddit itself is that we can kind of understand some of the back end and understand the community, um, from the administrator's perspective, but also I, th my hope is that Redditors will feel like this is something that is, that is by and for them, um, in a way that will be a little bit different. So we're, I think we're having a little bit more success, um, in, in finding real people and getting their real stories, um, because Redditors, uh, I, th you know, Redditors are fans of Reddit, right? Um, and so if we come to them and say, hey, we're WBUR, they're also big fans of public radio, a lot of them. So if we go, go to Redditors and say, hey, we're from WBUR, this, this storied public radio organization, but we're also working directly with Reddit itself, I think a lot of Redditors will feel like, okay, so you're not just going to use me for my story necessarily and, and, and put it out in the world. You actually have a vested interest in... Um, in understanding the platform and in working with Redditors and, and telling their stories in a way that 
I think feels a little bit less exploitive to Redditors, uh, hopefully. I mean, that's that's what we've encountered so far just anecdotally, and, and I think that that's what we hope to continue to do is really allow Redditors to feel ownership over this in a way that maybe they wouldn't feel um, with, uh, you know, another uh, organization kind of parachuting in to tell a story and then parachuting out. So Endless Thread is, you know, a formal partnership between WBUR and Reddit. So I'm curious, like, what does that relationship look like on a daily basis, weekly basis? Like, how how heavily involved is Reddit uh, kind of in the editorial process? Yeah. So I would say um, so far it's been pretty minimal. Um, we have had a ton of guidance from Reddit on uh, interacting with Redditors, on uh, engaging with the platform, on understanding what is happening on the platform, um, reaching out to moderators, um, and 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 also, you know, we they they throw us ideas as well. They say, "Oh, here, this this is kind of an interesting thing that's happening on the platform," um, and and we always consider those. Um, but generally speaking, the editorial is is pretty singularly produced on uh, on our side. So um, so we'll put the we'll put the content together. We give it to Reddit just to take a listen, um, and then they give us feedback. Again, this is very early days, but they'll give us feedback, and then we'll we'll kind of take that feedback to heart, finalize the episode, and put it out. So on a on a daily basis, you know, we're talking to our our cohorts at Reddit um, or our you know our collaborators at Reddit, just in terms of um, kind of logistical things around interacting with the platform, understanding the platform, and getting advice on how to um, engage in certain subreddits and certain communities. On a week-to-week basis, it's more like folks uh, are, you know, we're, we're producing the content, delivering it to Reddit, getting their feedback, um, maybe incorporating some of that feedback, and then uh, putting the episodes out. Um, and then on a long-term basis, I think the goal is to really, to make sure that, like, we can build this uh, this podcast um, to to have a, a a really broad audience, but also a broad Reddit audience, um, and just making sure that you know what we make really feels like something by and for the internet in a way that redditors will recognize and appreciate. What are some of the pieces of advice uh, and tips that the Reddit team gave you with regards to how to interact with the platform as a journalist? I'm not going to tell you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Tell me your secrets, <laughs> all of them. Well, I think again, you know, for us, like the biggest, the biggest thing so far is is has been to like, has been to be and 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 we like. I I would like to believe part of the reason that I was um, hired to do this job is that I you know I've been a redditor for a long time. Um, you know, I, I I'm not like a super user, but I've I've been engaging in the platform uh, for a long time through a couple of different accounts. Um, and so um, I think one of the biggest things for us has just been like be on the platform, be interacting with people, be using it as the other users do. Um, and and that's pretty basic, right? That's like be a part of the community that you that you want to um, that you want to source for for good stories and good content. Um, and I think again, Reddit has this kind of amazing ability to 
to recognize. Redditors have a kind of amazing ability to recognize um, when someone is is a sort of genuine participant in the community, and um, and if you're just again trying to sort of jump in and like get people to tell you their secrets and then jump back out and tell their secrets to the world, then I don't think you're going to get as far. You know, the other thing I would say is there. there's a lot of, um, you know, I mentioned some of these already, but, the, you know, subreddits like Depth Hub and, and Best Of are, uh, and, and uh, uh, I, think, I think it's called uh, Reddit Drama. Some of these subreddits um, are, or communities are, um, are places where you, you kind of find not just the stuff that kind of pops up on our all because it's, it's just popular and people upvote it and then it's an amazing gif of a, a robot falling over um, or something like that that you sent me the other day. <laughs> but um, I do really love robots. Uh, so do I. And, you know, Reddit loves robots, too. So it's great. Um, but it, but it is amazing. Like one of the one of my favorite things that I'm really excited about that I want to produce into a full episode um, and that probably makes our technical director want to pull his, you know, his eyeballs out as he uh, sits and listens to this is uh, I want to, um, you know, somebody posted, you might remember this story of uh, um, there was an object that came into uh, our solar system, um, I think about a month and a half ago. It was like, a you know, a, a something from outside of our solar system and it came and moved through our solar system is basically an asteroid. And somebody posted um, the story about that from The Guardian, I think, on the World News subreddit or something like that. Um, and Redditors immediately started writing in the comments section a movie script uh, a la <laughs> Independence Day around that yes. story. Um, yes, that's amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing. And and it was like it and it was like pitch perfect. Right. Like like. It was just really, really well done in the comments section. And so there are things like that that kind of that may not always make it to the front page necessarily, um, but they're they're happening and they're really fascinating and interesting. And so, like, I guess there are a lot of different layers to the platform. And, you know, I would say, um, you know, if you're a journalist trying to understand and work within the platform to produce journalism you know, one of the most important things to do is kind of like um, study the meta <laughs> or like, I don't know, just figure out figure out ways to like get beneath the surface of, of what happens uh, on, on some of the main pages and, and kind of dig deeper into the subreddits that you may not immediately uh, find very easily, but but that have really good content on them. And one of my favorite ways to do that is to hit the random button. Um, I try to do that at least once a day so that I find, you know, communities that I may not have seen before. The scope and structure both seem pretty broad and fluid. Like the first episode, which I listened to was, you know, kind of like a memoir of someone's life and also a commentary on homelessness. And I'm so curious kind of what other stories might we expect moving forward, you know, besides, you know, potential scripted fictional podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we have a massive document um, with probably, I think, 80 different episodes um, that we're talking about doing, um, which doesn't maybe sound like a lot, but feels like a lot. Um, and uh, 
I think, again, and this is one of the challenges, too, potentially, of the show, is, like, we want to establish a voice and create a voice that people will recognize and come back for. Um, but we also really do want to be flexible. So um, we've talked about uh, exploring um, some discoveries that people have made about the way that their st- student loans uh, are being sold um uh, to loan companies run by state governments. Um, we are exploring the possibility of uh, producing um, episodes around um, women's issues and, uh, and, and things, you know, stories particularly around the Me Too movement. Um, we're talking about um, producing stories um, in which we um, talk to and, uh, and and explore uh, communities of, of uh, people of color who are on Reddit. Um, uh, all things that I think um, some people who make stereotypical assumptions about the platform might not realize exist on the platform. So I think that's one of the things that, like, are, if we have a North Star, it's like trying to tell, um, tell stories um, about Reddit and on Reddit um, that are, that are surprising to people. Um, so those are all sort of random examples from the top of my head. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got a story, we've got an episode coming up that is, uh, sort of a mix of stories from World War II, um, that have been told on the platform. Uh, I mentioned the crazy movie script story. Um, we want to do a story about spoilers and, um, the free folk subreddit, um, which I don't know if you're aware of, but is like basically all about game of Thrones. Um, uh, so I just, uh, you know, run the jewels. Yeah. Yeah. So do indeed. So, um, so LP, uh, is like a huge, uh, sci-fi nerd. Um, and, um, I actually want to do, there's a, there's a subreddit called, um, uh, I think it's called Ask <laughs> Ask Science Fiction, um, and it's questions about um, science fiction universes. Um, that oh my god, that sounds like my Saturday night. <laughs> Same, and and the people <laughs> who answer the questions try to answer them with logic based in the universe. Um, and so I want to uh, I want to get LP to go through a bunch of that stuff with me and and to react to it and talk about it. Um, so I don't know. We've got a lot of crazy ideas. We'll see if we get to make any of them. But um, but we're we're trying to do the full spectrum. We'll get to the news of the week in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Scripps Howard Awards, one of the nation's most prestigious journalism competitions, will accept entries through February 2nd. The 65th annual competition will present $170,000 in prize money for work across 16 categories. Go to shawards.org for information and to enter. Moving on to a story that's dominated political conversation for the past week, We turn to a book. Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House has risen to the top of the bestseller list, sparked conversation about the president's mental fitness, and raised some serious questions about the journalistic methods that the author employed. Here to talk about that with me are my colleagues Alex Neeson and Meg Dalton. Thanks for being here, guys. Hey. Thanks, Pete. 
As I said, the reaction to Wolf's book since the first excerpts were published over a week ago have been leading seemingly every cable news broadcast, have been dominating conversations in newsrooms throughout the Acela corridor and probably around the country. It's a juicy tabloid-style narrative about infighting and backstabbing in the West Wing, where Wolf apparently had almost unfettered access for a number of months during the early period of the Trump presidency. Alex, what has the reaction been like? So it's sort of dominated the news cycle, and it's kind of all that we can talk about, not even just in media reporters uh, in our circles, but any journalist really paying attention. Um, but I think what it's really done is it's revived a conversation about concerns over Trump's mental fitness, his uh, ability to be president. This is a conversation we've been having since he announced his candidacy, um, and it's kind of come and go in waves. And, and so what we've seen with this book is kind of uh, what many see as further confirmation that perhaps he's not fully fit. And I think this confirms some folks' suspicions, and at the very least, it's definitely opened the conversation back up again. Yeah, Wolf describes Trump as semi-literate and has several aides, some on the record, uh, some just having their words paraphrased or described, call him like a child, say that dealing with him is almost like trying to deal with someone who can't comprehend the necessary information to do the job. It's also the, the impact when we talk about it. There's been a tangible effect in conservative media circles where Steve Bannon, who we should say was Wolf's kind of source for a lot of this information, some of the most inflammatory quotes, has been pushed out of Breitbart, uh, forced to step down because some of his backers, his, his most important backer, Rebecca Mercer, turned on him in favor of supporting President Trump, who disowned Bannon after some of the attacks on Trump's family came out through this book. Meg, I want to turn to another part of the book, though, which is the journalistic integrity of Michael Wolff. And you've been pretty vocal about your uh, dislike for the attention this book's received and have kind of said, you know what, I want to stay away from all of this. So why the concern? Um, well, number one, I don't like Michael Wolff as a person. <laughs> For those of you not in New York media circles, which is where Michael Wolf comes from, uh, he is he is widely disliked both for personal and professional reasons. He comes with a reputation. He's yeah. got a little bit of a reputation, uh, and I don't. I think initially that may have clouded my feelings towards this book, but upon further reading and just discussion of Fire and Fury, the book has only added to my feelings towards him. Rather, my biggest concern is that a lot of the information that's in the book um, has been either proven to be inaccurate or is questionable because other things in his book have been proven to be inaccurate. There was a really good PolitiFact article that kind of pinpointed like specific parts of the book that just aren't true. So like in this climate of fake news where we as journalists have to be really vigilant about fact-checking and making sure things are accurate. The fact that there's a book getting so much publicity where a lot of it's not rooted in evidence, it's more rooted in narrative and like gossip, that's incredibly problematic when you have an administration that's looking for fodder all the time and like looking for ways to further attack journalists for being, uh, you know, quote, fake news. Yeah. And I think so, I mean, the media, the press has been sort of on the defense for two years now um, and, and sort of trying to defend ourselves. And our singular argument has been like a commitment to accuracy and a commitment to the truth. And so I think with Fire and Fury, the reaction seems to be, well, we know Michael Wolf comes with a reputation and we know that there are parts of this where he's not quite right about things. But 
to me, it seems like we've sort of forgiven that, at least immediately, that we've sort of said, yeah, here's this guy, and we know we know what we're getting uh, with this type of journalism and with this particular journalist, and, and we know that there are bits of this that are not quite right, but this speaks to this larger ongoing conversation about like his mental fitness and and it's sort of confirmation bias in a way where we've forgiven these smaller slights where perhaps in a different climate we wouldn't or perhaps if it were a story about a different person uh, we wouldn't tolerate. That brings up a good point which is that I don't think there's anything new in the book like it's all things that we've been talking about either this year or during the campaign um, including mental fitness as you mentioned and so I'm not sure if the kind of short-term you know, re-upping of this conversation is worth the kind of long-term effects it could have with regards to trust in media. And I think, like, again, like, the book is is more about emotion rather than, like, critical thinking or analysis or, like, anything that... It's, like, not an approach we should be taking to this administration. You know, I think it's... I agree with that um, concern. and And I think sometimes... The idea of Donald Trump as existing in uh, like some reality where gossip is the word, I think this book definitely makes sense, um, and and I get why it's so popular. Um, but again, I think that mainstream press, anyways, has sort of tried to position themselves as above that and really committed to fairness and the truth. But you kind of understand that that maybe we're sort of entering this space with Donald Trump a little bit more. And we can see that not necessarily in our work, but in our reactions to to work that is sort of fashioned in this way. Yeah, like the whole hype effect of it all just seems kind of uh, hypocritical. We're we're trying to push forward a way of doing this work that is in complete uh, conflict with this work that we're praising. I think there's something to that argument that Michael Wolff was somehow suited to report on Donald Trump, that mm-hmm. yeah. you had this tabloid president who was treated by, and Michael Wolff's not a tabloid reporter, he's written for a number of magazines before, but his approach in this book was certainly to dive right into the gossip and backstabbing, to print without really checking whether or not these claims were true, what one side said and refute that at times with what the other side said and not really try and figure out, okay, well, who's telling the truth here? And I think there's value. I I don't want to be cast as the Michael Wolf defender because I certainly have concerns with his tactics, with his professionalism um, and with his approach. But I do think there's value in a look from the inside of the, the White House, from the inside of the West Wing about how this presidency, how this administration runs. Are there concerns about details? Sure. Um, You know, he misspells people's names. There's just general typos in the book. He certainly gets things wrong in a small sense. At the same time, there haven't been, over the course of the last week and all this attention paid, you know, major pushback from the principals on the larger truth, the larger narrative. So I'm sympathetic to the argument that actually this book could do more damage to the idea of serious journalism. But I also believe it's possible to hold two thoughts in your head that there are problems with this book, but it also has real value. Yeah. I mean, I don't I'm not saying that there's no value at all. I don't know. Maybe we just don't know yet, like in the long term, like you were saying earlier, Meg, you know what the consequences of this are going to be. And maybe there'll be none and maybe it'll just be this, you know, this moment will just pass and then that'll be it. And we'll wait for the next kind of piece of outrageous (laughs) reporting from the White House (laughs) um, as if there's any shortage. 
or perhaps something will be revealed to be seriously wrong. And it maybe it's just one thing in this entire book, but we know that you know, even the smallest mistakes now are costing us more as an industry. It's it's not really just about one journalist or one piece of journalism when a mistake is made. Um, we sort of all pay for it. And so I think that there's a reasonable fear of that. And I also think it just confirms that, like, people will respond to, and re- regarding Trump coverage, people respond overwhelmingly to kind of the person and the politics of this administration, but not necessarily the policy. And so I think like because this has been on everybody's uh, radar for the last couple of weeks and all of the coverage of Trump has been focused in relationship to this book and not like the actual policies that are happening, whether it's DACA or, you know, various other things that are seriously going to affect the long term, you know, nature of this democracy. Yeah, I think the the nature of the Trump presidency and the nature of Donald Trump, the person it does seem to fit with uh, the style and, and the tone of this book. Our editor and publisher, Kyle Pope, wrote on Twitter that every era gets the Boswell it deserves and that Obama, with his professorial, uh, intellectual approach, got David Remnick. Um, and Trump, in all of his tabloid bombast, gets Michael Wolff. Turning to our second topic, the only narrative that's seemed to be able to push Trump off the front pages over the past several months has been the ongoing reckoning with sexual abuse and harassment in several industries around the country. In the media world, that all sort of began with an anonymous spreadsheet created back in October and circulated among women in media, mostly in the New York area, naming several men who had been accused of sexual harassment or assault. It was intended to be something private, but within hours it had been shared on social media BuzzFeed wrote an article about it, and the author and creator of the spreadsheet took it down. By then, however, the names in the news had gotten out. Over the next several months, we've seen men like Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, and several others lose their jobs, be suspended, had their behavior called into question, many of whom were named on this initial list. And this week, the list is back in the news. So, Alex, can you catch us up on what's gone on over the last 48 hours or so? So on Tuesday, a rumor began with a tweet um, that Harper's Magazine was going to run a story which would out the person who created the shitty media men list back in October. It spread really quickly. Opposition to that spread really quickly on Twitter. um, And there were sort of all these things swirling around. One, that there was going to be a story about the list. It would out the name. And there were calls for other writers who have pieces in the same issue to pull their pieces. There was a lot of confusion. There was It was not clear what the story was actually about. Um, it wasn't clear how we knew that the person who started the list had found out that they were going to be outed. But there was just sort of this widespread outrage. Journalists started calling around. I called the Harper's spokesperson and asked for confirmation about the contents of the piece about who was going to write the piece. And we were able to find out that there was a piece that was going to be written uh, by a writer named Katie Royfe uh, in the March issue. Um, The spokeswoman at Harper's didn't really say what the story was about, um, just that it was still being edited and that she was writing a piece. Katie Royfe, like Michael Wolff, is a person who comes with a reputation of taking controversial stances on hot-button issues and often is seen as a contrarian. Um, And so I think that sort of fueled fears that this was going to be a terrible, no good story um, and that the person 
who created the list was at risk of doxing. She might be in physical danger. That happened all within the span of like a few hours on Tuesday night. So Wednesday night uh, in The Cut, Moira Donegan wrote an essay revealing herself to be the creator of the shitty media men list. She's a former editor at The New Republic, and she wrote this really honest, uh, emotional essay explaining uh, why she created the list and what had happened uh, ever since. She admitted to being naive um, when she first created the list um, and talked about her motivations sort of coming from a place of frustration and and experience where behavior uh, like you know, harassment and assault sort of not being taken seriously and there having been no consequences for men um, and wanting some sort of outlet for that frustration and um, and really having it be a resource for people, particularly women who don't sort of run in these popular media circles where they might be privy to uh, a heads up when they're walking into newsrooms or, or uh, you know, professional situations. I think the resource framing is a really good one, both in terms of just the knowledge and awareness for women in the industry, but also a resource for journalists, including, you know, ourselves at CJR. Um, I think it was the list was a really good starting place for a lot of the investigations that happened within our own industry with regards to sexual assault and sexual harassment. I know, like, at least at least for us at CJR, served as a starting point for kind of our own internal audit in the journalism industry, much like on par with the Weinstein and Hollywood space. And really, if you think about um, one of the early criticisms of the list was that, one, it was anonymous um, and it and, and, you know, no one put their name, attached their name to any of the descriptions of uh, harassment or assault that went into it. And that was one of the earliest criticisms. One of the other things was that there was such a wide range of behaviors described uh, in the list, which, I mean, some people thought it was inappropriate to lump things like rape uh, and other physical assault with, you know, something like a sleazy DM, you know, that you get from your boss at 11 p.m., but one of the things uh, that I think it sort of foreshadowed was like the banality of, of this type of behavior and that this is so regular and that it's it is really there is such a wide range of these sort of unwanted advances that leads all the way to the worst offenses. Um, and we sort of saw that confirmed when we did our survey project in uh, hearing from reporters uh, all across the country who had experienced a similarly wide range of mistreatment of this type. Yeah, it is important to remember that when the list was was first uh, went live, this was sort of right at the beginning of the media as an industry entering a conversation about sexual harassment and assault. Um, you know, the focus had up until that point largely been on Hollywood. So I think that was part of the beginning of, you know, turning the light to shine on ourselves. And I, and I think, again, you mentioned like that the lumping of these different things together, I think the list kind of just really emphasized that it's a cultural thing within the industry and just, you know, society in general, and that there's a lot of gray area. And also, like, just from a personal level, as, like, a, as a woman, it was kind of validating in a way. It was troubling in many regards to see the different things that populated the spreadsheet, but it was also validating that, like, like these are not things that I am experiencing in isolation. It's something that's, you know, so widespread, like, so, so widespread. The other aspect of this story that was brought to the forefront this week, beyond the the value of the list and the affirmation, as you mentioned, that it gave to a lot of people in the industry, 
were the ethics of Harper's uh, and Katie Worthy specifically going after or, or trying to identify who created the list. Um, and that the identity of that person was known to some in the industry, but not to everyone, certainly, and it certainly wasn't public. So it seemed like the the condemnation for Royfi's uh, approach was pretty swift and fairly universal from journalists, not just women, but men also in the industry saying this is not something that the public needs to know. Yeah, and I think it's we should point out that there's there's still confusion. There was a lot of confusion about like what was actually in the piece. As soon as the rumor started and people started to talk, there was a story in the New York Times where uh, a reporter reached out to Katie Royfe, um and she said that she had no plans to um, name anybody against their will. Um, there was some confusion about folks on Twitter saying that other writers had uh, pulled their pieces in response and Harper saying that they had not been contacted by any other writers. And I think that those are still questions that are kind of unresolved and still confusing even now that even after uh, Moira's essay was published. But certainly we've struggled, I think, to figure out how to talk about the list after it came down. The BuzzFeed story, there was a similar backlash to that because the list was intended to be private and, you know, a reporter wrote about it. Um, And I think there was a similar conversation then about like, well, was that the right thing to do? Um, And was that appropriate or was that some sort of breach of trust? And so I think now the idea that Harper's was writing about it at all is one thing. And then, of course, you know, whether it was appropriate for them to name somebody who perhaps did not want to be named was also part of the conversation. One thing that strikes me as the list is back in the news and we think back to October is that when this was first made public, there was no indication that we would still be focused on and talking about sexual harassment, sexual assault in the media and in any number of industries four months later. I just think I'm, I'm happy and somewhat surprised that this is still a major topic of conversation. I know when we talked about this back in October, there was a concern it would be a moment. And, and it really seems like it hasn't been. It's been a, a movement that is continuing to uh, you know, push change and, and have effects across any number of industries. And, and really have influence on the news cycle. Um, it's an editorial priority, uh, clearly, in that reporters are still pursuing these stories within our industry and within others. And so I think that's significant also and surprising. Like there's even sexual harassment beats now. Like The Hollywood Reporter has a beat for sexual harassment, which is sad that you that we have to have that. But I think it speaks to the staying power um, of this moment right now. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us as we kick off the 2018 year. Thanks to my colleagues, Alex Neeson and Meg Dalton for being here and to Ben Brock Johnson for talking with Meg earlier. As always, check out the great work we've got up at CJR.org and we'll see you next week.